Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Before we get into this week's show, a friendly warning. This episode contains explicit content about sex that may not be suitable for kids. So heads up, we're going to be talking in really frank ways about sex and anatomy and problems and solutions. Nothing that wouldn't be discussed in about eighth grade level sex ed if it was really good sex ed. Yeah, if it was better than my sex ed, for sure. So yeah, what we're saying is content warning. Content warning. So, like, stop now, guys. If you don't want to listen about sex, stop. Just go. But we'd like you to stay. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. This week, we're talking to sex therapist Dr. Batsheva Marcus, a sexual dysfunction specialist and the clinical director and founder of Mays Women's Sexual Health in New York, one of the largest sexual dysfunction clinics for women in the country. Batsheva has a master's in public health and a PhD in human sexuality, and she actually wrote her dissertation on the effects of vibrators, which you can bet we're going to be talking about. So that, if you're keeping track, Nerdette listeners, means that this season we have a sex doctor. And we have had a space doctor. This is good stuff, right? This is good stuff. (laughs) You may find it surprising that part of Batsheva's work also involves counseling specifically for Orthodox Jewish communities, which Batsheva is also a part of. And so she helps those women with sexual challenges through the framework of their very strict religious guidelines. You may have seen Batsheva featured in the New York Times back in 2015 when she was dubbed the Orthodox sex guru. And you may hear her co-hosting The Joy of Text, which is a podcast about the intersection between between Jewish law and sexuality. With that, let's jump right into all things sex. Spot Shavo, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Oh, yay. We're really excited to have you. So I thought we could just kind of start with the basics. I wonder what kind of women come to your clinic and what do they get out of it that they can't get at, you know, just the OBGYN? All kinds of women come to the clinic. I mean, really, all kinds of women come to the clinic. People always ask about ages, but I would say we have like 18-year-olds to 85-year-olds. I really am waiting for the day I see a 90-year-old, but that has not (laughs) yet happened, but I should. So what makes us different, and this is, a, I think, a huge difference, is that traditionally people have always assumed if there's problems for women, like if they have low desire or problems with orgasm, that it's always in their head, that there's sort of something psychological going on. And we work with the assumption we're a medical center, actually. And so we work on that really cool intersection between the psychological and the medical because we've learned over the years that the same way that men can have blood flow problems or hormonal problems, so can women. And that has a huge impact. And what's really frustrating is that often women are just kind of told, well, you're not trying hard enough when there's something physically wrong. And so what we do is a combination. Every woman sees a medical practitioner and a therapist. And we work on both levels and it's truly transformative and it's exciting and it's cutting edge and it's amazing. So come on down. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder, what would you say is the most common question that you hear day in, day out? So I think you're all going to recognize this common question. Am I normal? 
Like everybody thinks that they're not normal sexually. It's really astonishing to me. Like it took me a long time to kind of get there, like to understand what that was. I think that we grow up with a lot of shame. And even though we're a society that's like saturated with sexual images, nobody's really talking about it. And so everybody thinks that everybody else is functioning differently than they are. And so everybody thinks they're not normal. And so you know, I can have two intakes with two women on the same day, and one of them will say, this is going to be the weirdest thing you ever heard about Java, but I never slept with anybody but my current partner, you know. And then two hours later, I'll have, this is going to be the weirdest thing you've ever heard about Java, but I slept with 50 guys when I was in college. So everybody feels like something's not right about them, their anatomy, the way they look, the way they behave. So that's for sure, am I normal, is the most common question. That's different than the most common problem people come in, which I'm happy to talk about also. But Yeah, definitely. What is the most common problem? So I'd say there are two. There are two problems that we probably see the most of all together. One is low desire. Either I used to have a lot of desire and I don't anymore, or I never really had that much desire. And that's a very, very common one. And the other one, it may strike you as a little bit more surprising, even though it's really common. I can't get a penis in the vagina or there's tremendous pain when I try to put a penis in the vagina. And that's usually due to tight muscles. It's a condition called vaginismus. And Wait, does that mean the most vaginal in Latin? Vaginismus, I think it means pain. No? Or tight okay. vagina. I don't know. You're the Latin person. I'm not. <laughs> like, I can do it. Hebrew. I can do Hebrew. Um, yeah. So vaginismus is the inability to get a penis or sometimes anything in your vagina. And 7 to 15% of women can have this condition and nobody talks about it. And so women will come to us who can never get a tampon and couldn't get a finger and have been married like 11 years. We had one person who married 23 years and it never consummated the marriage. And it is so incredibly common and honestly, usually very easy to treat, but it's like this silence that nobody talks about. And so you have these women who have gone with this black cloud, either they're not dating or they're in relationships and their sex lives have fallen apart and because they just can't get anything into their vagina or there's horrible pain when they do. So vaginismus is a big one. We see a ton of that. It's very, very fixable. If, you know, at the end of this podcast, people leave with one message, well, whatever, this would be an important message. If you're having trouble, it is totally fixable. We work with the patients. Again, it's the medical practitioner and the therapist working together. And so those are the two biggest problems that usually come in. But there's tons of other problems. But those are the two biggies. So we're talking about the most common problems and questions that women don't realize are common because they're not talking about them. And on that note, what are some of the taboos about sex that you wish were more approachable? Um, pretty much everything. <laughs> I think pretty much everything. <laughs> um, I think the way the way women, let's talk about women, the way women have orgasms, I think it's amazing in our society how we've managed to, I have no idea where this came from, but this idea that we now grade women's orgasms, right? If you have an orgasm from a penis and a vagina which is three out of 10 women, just for the, everybody to hear. And I'm like always amazed at how many women do not know that statistic, even though it's in every woman's magazine every other month. But three <laughs> out of 10 women, seriously, three out of 10 women can have an orgasm from penis and a vagina alone. And yet that is considered the gold standard of orgasms. A hand or a mouth usually gets the silver medal, you know, if you can have an orgasm from a hand or a mouth. If you have to use your own hand, that's slightly lower. And if you have to use a vibrator, that's even lower. Honorable mention. Is yeah, that exactly. the honorable that's mention? The, I'm like, are you, are you <laughs> kidding me? Like, an orgasm is an orgasm. It's not, who cares how that orgasm is induced? And that's like a perfect example of where women are ashamed. And so some of what has to happen is you need to kind of re-educate them to say there's really nothing more admirable about an orgasm 
orgasm that came from a penis and a vagina than did from a vibrator, as in fact, the vibrator one may be stronger. So I honestly, almost everything I'd say to you, just loosen up. If the way you have sex is enjoyable to you and works with a partner, if you so choose to have a partner, then go for it. Like what, who else's business is it? You know, what is the right way to have sex and what's the wrong way to have sex? So your dissertation is about vibrators, which I think is amazing. Can you tell us about it? Sure. So I was interested, really very little research has been done about women and vibrators. Since my dissertation came out, somebody did a quantitative study to see like what percentage of American women are currently using vibrators. And this came out to about 55%. Uh, Yeah, pretty high, right? Higher than you'd think. That's more people than know what podcasts are. I would just (laughs) like to point out. 45% of Americans know what a podcast is and 55% of women yeah, are using a vibrator. And remind us, when when did your dissertation come out? Um, about 10 years ago. Okay. So I was interested in kind of women's stories. Like, what does a woman go through? What is she thinking about? How does it affect her sex life? So mine was not quantitative, it was qualitative. And I took a bunch of women who had never used a vibrator and I gave them a vibrator, the Hitachi Magic Wand, which I'm, you know, whatever. It's a very strong vibrator. Um, A lot has happened in the world of vibrators in the last 10 years. But in the olden days, there were not as many options as there are now. There's so many fabulous options now. So in the olden days, it was sold as a back massager. I think it still is. It's very strong. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot like the sharper image. Do you remember the episode from Sex and the City with Samantha and she wants to return? sure. Yeah, she wants to return her vibrator because it didn't get her off. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? It's a back massager. (laughs) So um, I figured I'd start at the top. So anyway, so I gave these women the Tachi Magic Wand. In one case, I ended up turning around and giving her a a less strong one because it was too strong for her. But I said to them, I want you to start using it by yourself and then with your partner. And then we're going to talk again in two months, which is exactly what I did. So I did an extensive interview prior and extensive interview afterwards. And I looked at the issues that the women were for them in their heads and in their bodies and in their sex lives when they started using a vibrator. And it was really interesting. It goes back to that sort of gold standard thing again. Like somehow they felt like it was cheating, Hmm. like using a vibrator. It was so much easier to have an orgasm that it was cheating. (laughs) And then there's the issue of like what's natural and what's not natural. You know, women are all hung up on like what's natural. And, And I will often turn to women and say, do you wear eyeglasses? Do you use electrical light bulbs? Like candles are more natural, you know, but you know, electric lights can give you much better light to read your book. So, you know, those are some of the issues that came up. I was also fascinated because almost every single one of them said that they would be very comfortable talking to their partners. In most cases, it was husbands about using the vibrator, but only about half of them did in the end. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting, and this also helped in my work, was like they weren't sure how to bring it up. Like one of them said to me, what am I supposed to do? Say, OK, honey, so today um, I took the kids to the park and I did the laundry and I tried out my vibrator. <laughs> so, they, right. So one of the things that I talk about and what came out of this dissertation and what I recommend is sort of conversations with women for practitioners who are suggesting to women to use vibrators, A, helping them pick a vibrator because sound was a big issue, noise was a big issue, which I didn't really expect um, to help them pick a vibrator, but also kind of talk them through some of these issues. And I think it'll be make it much more likely that they will then use actually use the vibrator. So how much do you think these women also felt empowered by vibrators who had never used them before? So for some women, I think it was like a light bulb went off. Oh, my God, this is so much easier. And I think for some of the women who did talk to their partners about it, they were struck. I think they were nervous that they thought their partners would somehow feel replaced. But I think in my experience and with a lot of these women's experience, like the partners actually really loved 
having the vibrant. I hate to say it, it made their job so much easier, you know? <laughs> like your hand and your mouth could get pretty tired, but uh, you have this great little uh, vibrator. So, And they loved watching their partners have pleasure. So that was an interesting thing. And I think that was often very empowering for the women for the women as well. So I, I think it was. It takes a secure partner to realize that, again, like you said, it's not like we try to do everything else in our lives without the convenience of modern tools. Right. So it's interesting. I feel like the partners are tend to be less resistant over the years I've seen this than the women are afraid that they will be. Wow. Not to say there ha- I haven't had some situations where the partners were not happy about it, but by and large, I would say 90 five even percent of the cases of my patients who've started using vibrators. And I had, oh my God, I had this 83-year-old patient who was a bird watcher who was, she was the cutest. Oh my God, I loved her. And she came for a variety of reasons, but one of which was harder to have an orgasm. So I gave her the vibrator. I think it totally changed her life. And she told me the story once when she came in for a, an appointment, she said, you know, her husband had been like not really paying much attention to her because he was working on their video of their last trip to Italy or whatever. <laughs> and she was feeling kind of neglected. And so she plugged in the vibrator and left it on his pillow. So when he came into the bedroom, he saw the vibrator and he got the hint. Um, I mean, I do think in terms of the partner piece, I I'm a little sensitive. Like the rabbit, you know, the ra- the famous rabbit also from Sex in the City. Yes. So those are not the ones I usually recommend for partnered sex. I mean, if people love them because they're fun, that's great. But if you're going to use a vibrant on a regular basis, having another penis as well as another thing that makes you orgasm easier, because usually the vibrant is used on the clitoris, usually that could be a little bit more, I think, the guys could be a little more resentful of that because it's sort of like then you've got all my parts. Right, like, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the rabbit, I, I usually save for like my vaginismus patients who have learned how to have intercourse but, and then we want them to keep having something in their vagina to keep the muscles from tightening up again so that I'm sure this is way more information than you want. This is all the information we want. We want all the information. Okay. How many vibrators do you think you give out in a given week? A lot. Uh, maybe 10. To a weekday? That seems good. Maybe, uh, maybe that. That seems a little high. It sort of <laughs> depends. <laughs> yeah. But what I do do is I keep a stash of a number of different ones in the office. And then we actually have a, the women try the vibrators in the exam room in the back of the office with the locked door. Um, she puts condoms on the vibrators and tries them because one of the things I have really learned over the years is that the quality of the vibration matters. Like different people respond differently to different kinds of vibrations. And so rather than buying like eight vibrators, you can just try them in the office and then we'll come in and then you're done and you'll be like, okay, this is the one that really feels best and works best for me. So I know people are always like, are you kidding? But we do. And it works really well. The truth is I started doing that because I used to show the women the vibrators in my office and I'd show them to them and they'd always pick the cute little battery operated ones, right? Like <laughs> they, right, they're like cute and they're subtle and they're fun. And I'd be like, but that's not going to work well enough for you, I don't think. But they were like, no, no, it's fine. And finally I got fed up. So I put them in the back with the cute little battery operators and the plugins and the chargeable ones. And invariably I come back and they'll be like, okay, I need this one. I want this one. <laughs> you know? So that solved that problem. So did you always know that this is what you wanted to do? How did you become a sex therapist? I started out in a different career and ended up through a total side door. I started working with a urologist who I work with, still work with who does male sexual dysfunction and was working with him sort of on a more administrative level setting up sperm banks. And he always had male sexual dysfunction. And when female sexual dysfunction kind of came on the horizon, which was really from a medical perspective only, it's a little mind-boggling, only about 19 or 20 years ago. And the reason I know that is because 
Okay, this is Batsheva's view of sexual history. It may be wrong, but I am pretty confident about this. So about 19, exactly 19 years ago, Viagra came on the market. So when Viagra came on the market, there was a whole huge specialization of urologists and researchers who were doing male sexual dysfunction, specifically erection problems. And all of a sudden, Viagra came on and made it very easy to treat. So now you had all these researchers and all of these like top level doctors who kind of didn't have what to do. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it. So they started thinking, oh, women, maybe women, it's not all in women's heads. And that is around the time that research started happening on female issues as well. So I was working with this physician and I said, you know, I think we should move into this field. And I had a master's in social work. So I went back and started studying and we opened the Women's Center and I started doing my PhD at the same time as we were kind of developing all the techniques that we do with the women. That seems like pretty strong correlation. Right. Those two facts happening 19 years ago. Exactly. I also wonder if the pervasiveness of Viagra in the marketplace meant that there were male patients who for another decade or two longer were complaining about <laughs> their partner's yes. quote-unquote dysfunction. Right, all dressed up and nowhere to go. Uh-huh. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, I think that that is probably true as well. So while I was doing my PhD, I was working in the Women's Center, but so much has changed over the years because it's a new area and it's a new field and new drugs are coming out and new things are being experimented with and you know we're going to different places. I just took two NPs to Israel because they were doing a treatment for a specific pain condition that I didn't think was being done well in America. So we went and got trained for that. Like, it's just fun because you're I'm helping women and I'm also getting to do all of the sleuth work to figure out how to solve new problems as they come up. A sexual sleuth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good business card. Oh, my God. You know what? Forget that. I'm going to write a book. There you go. I love you that. Can have that. <laughs> okay. You can have that okay. title. Thanks. <laughs> I'll put an acknowledgement to you. <laughs> <laughs> So, Batsheva, when you have, like, a really exhausting kind of horrible day, what is the thing that you kind of come back to to remind you of why you're doing this work? Like, what makes it important? Honestly, I think I have usually more better days Good. than horrible. I do have some horrible days where I just have a group of patients who are difficult. But I have to say, like, when you – I just – yesterday I just spoke to a young woman who's been married for two years and hasn't been able to have intercourse and – it has been like a four-month process with her, and we've been holding her hand every step of the way. And on Friday, I called her up, and I'm like, she's like, oh, my God, we did it. And we got the penis in, and there was no pain, and we did it like three times in the last two days. And there were like literally tears in my eyes. Like if she'd been there, I would have hugged her. Like I feel like we change a lot. Like people come in, and their marriage is on the rocks because they have a pretty good marriage, but the woman is just not interested in sex at all anymore, and you help her with her hormone levels and you change some behavioral things and all of a sudden the marriage is in a really good place. Like I feel unbelievably privileged. And when I'm having a really bad day, all I need to do is stop and think about two days ago or, you know, last week. And there's always some almost magical story. I know it sounds crazy and I feel like it must sound almost unbelievable, but this is like you going into the recesses of people's lives in a place where they don't usually trust people to go and helping them make change. And for women who have had vaginismus and want to get pregnant, yesterday I got a call, the nurse practitioner came in, the assistant medical director, and she said, Bacheva, X, Y, and Z patient is expecting baby number two. She just emailed us. And there was somebody who couldn't have intercourse for the first five years of marriage. So... It's amazing. In just a minute, Batsheva tells us about the intersection between Jewish law and sex. You're listening to Nerdette.
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Batsheva, we're really interested to talk to you about your work in the Orthodox Jewish community. You have a podcast called The Joy of Text, which is all about the intersection of Jewish law and sex. But for your average Goy listener who has no idea what those two things have in common, can you explain the relationship between Judaism and sex? Yeah. So Jewish law, if you're an observant Jew, Jewish law touches every part of your life period, what you eat, how you use technology, and how you have sex. So it is pretty dramatic, both in an ethical way, like I would say values, Lyndon, as well as just very practical. So Orthodox women generally ascribe to something called um, Hilchot Nida, or um, the laws of separation, where from the time you get your period, basically for around two weeks, 11 days, 12 days, you completely separate from your partner, you sleep in separate beds, and you don't touch. And then at the end of those 12 days, you go to a ritual bath, a mikvah, and then you're reunited with your partner sexually and physically. And that is not the crazy out there right-wing orthodox. Like, all of us do that. Anybody who really considers themselves orthodox is a part of that world. So I know for people on the outside, it sounds sort of shocking, and I totally get it. I think it can be a lovely part of life. It can also be a very difficult part of life. So part of what we do is discuss some of those laws and how they may affect your sex life. But then we also touch on issues of monogamy, why monogamy may be a good thing or what the challenges of monogamy may be, masturbation, is that okay or not okay according to Jewish law and the different opinions about that, um, premarital sex, what to do about that, fantasies, issues of fantasies, issues of BDSM. You know, I'll go anywhere with this. And the co-host, the rabbi, Rabbi Dov Linzer, who's an amazing guy, I feel like he has a way harder job than me because I'm just the sex therapist, so I can pretty much say whatever I want, right? <laughs> but he is like, he's a rabbi in the community, so just flip it like priest. Like, you have to be careful what you say because you're going to have people on one side screaming at you and people on the other side screaming at you. And he does really a masterful job. He happens to be brilliant, but he does a masterful job of really looking at the texts. That's why it's called the joy of texts. It's such a good name. It's such oh, a good name. Oh, you like the name? Okay, good. I feel like... It, oh, I love it. Oh, okay, because I feel like, honestly, it went way over the heads of the young... Like, I would say the primary listeners are the this 18 to 23 year old group and they don't get it at all. I don't like they, just, they don't get the reference anyway. But he does. He brings in text. And then on, we have many episodes where he actually just brings Jewish texts from the Torah or from the Talmud, from the Bible. And we discuss them kind of from a, you know, how do we experience that text? Is that a positive text? Is that a negative text? I think the most important thing this podcast has done. And for me, this is such a labor of love. I love, love, love doing that podcast. My favorite project It allows us to have conversations that nobody's having, right? Like people don't discuss this in their living room, except for, I mean, I do, but most people don't (laughs) discuss it. My children will all tell you I do, Um, right? Not so happily. Um, So it allows us to go places that people maybe don't talk about. And also because it's a podcast, people can listen kind of in the privacy of their own home. And so issues that they may be embarrassed to talk to people about or don't know who to ask, it's a good way to get started. I mean, yeah, so that's what the podcast does. And we have like, we have one on how to talk to your children about sex. I'm very 
very, very big believer in sex education starts at home. So, yeah, that's pretty. And now we're, we've sort of tried to make them a little shorter because we're Jewish and we just went on way too long. And so, um, <laughs> so they got to be too long. So now I'm trying to keep them. So we, you know, we take listener questions and we spend like a half an hour kind of dissecting the question and sometimes looking at Jewish texts and kind of we go all over the place with it. But it really, I do feel like Judaism and sex there's just so much to say about it. And there's so many different approaches. Like, don't let anybody ever tell you that there's one approach to Judaism and sex. There's asceticism all the way to, like, much more openness. So in addition to the podcast, in your own practice, you also work with a lot of Orthodox Jewish women. And some of them are from very insular, stringent sects of Judaism. And I wonder what specific challenges does that community face? And how are you helping women and their husbands overcome those challenges within a religious framework? Big sigh. You heard the big sigh. Okay, so I kind of ended up in this through a little bit of a back door. I'm Orthodox, but I'm really on the modern spectrum of Orthodox. But some patients sort of found me as kind of a circuitous route. And then it's kind of a smallish community. So I think they feel like if there's a place to go where they can really be understood, not judged, then they're more comfortable. So there's a lot more challenges. And I guess the two biggest ones are that in, well, I'd say this is probably true about almost every religious community, but certainly as you get into the more, I'm going to use the term right wing, like the more fundamentalist communities, there's no sex education. I mean, none, none. And in some of these communities, there not only is there no sex education, but because there is no contact with popular culture, information is just not available. So girls can be ready to get married at, let's say, age 18, somewhere between 18 and 21, have no concept. Nobody's talked to them about their period, reproduction, penises, nothing. And then they will meet in some of these communities. They will meet a man one time, make the decision that they're going to get married, and then they do not have contact again for six months. Then they meet each other under the wedding canopy, which is pretty dramatic. So in those cases, there's no education and no information. And it's horrifying for some of these women, to be fair. Like, before they get married, they're taught by a bridal teacher, a kala teacher. Usually the bridal teacher is talking to them about the Jewish laws surrounding sex and sexuality, which are extremely complicated, um, which is the second thing they have to deal with. And they talk a little bit about the sex act itself, except that these bridal teachers don't have any much more experience than these women do. And so, you know, they have an N of one, which is their own experience. And so often they either give them misinformation or not good information. So that is an enormous challenge. And what happens is that when I start with a new young woman who comes out of that community, you know, my husband used to laugh because I would come home and I'd say, oh, my God, I feel like I'm in a canyon with no there's no place to grab on to climb out. Do you know what I mean? They don't have words. Like, they don't know what an orgasm is. They don't know what a clitoris is. They don't know what their vagina is. They haven't seen Gone with the Wind. They haven't seen Red Butler sweeping, you know, <laughs> her up the stairs. They don't know what they're going for, right? Like, they don't even have a fantasy of what they would like their life to look like. So I'm kind of starting from this empty space. Like, it's almost like I have ice around. Like, everything's slippery. Like, I need to sort of rebuild vocabulary with them. 
them. And that is such, such, such a challenge. But it's also incredibly gratifying when it works. So slowly but surely, like often I'll have to like dig a little bit into their history to try to figure out a time and place where they actually were turned on, even though they couldn't articulate. They didn't know what was going on. Um, You know, what's the game where you're trying to get somebody to guess a word, but you can't use the words? I think it's actually called taboo. (laughs) Exactly. Taboo. So I feel a little like playing taboo. You know, like I have to come up with descriptions of things so they'll understand concepts that we would think of as sort of, you know, an axiom. Of course, you get this concept. So that is, if you ask me about the biggest challenge, that is it. Like trying to catch them up for 10 years of education that the rest of us are having, even if we're not even aware of it. Like they'll come in and they'll fill out forms in our front office and they'll come to the front desk and say, I don't understand what these words are. Like, how often do you have orgasms? How often are you aroused? They don't know what those words are. So I need to kind of work on those words with them. Now, that's not everybody. Some of them do fine because their body just takes over naturally. So I don't want to make it sound like there's a community where nobody's having any kind of sexual pleasure because I don't think that's true at all. But I think if you're somebody who isn't naturally sexual, then it can be a unique challenge in this community. And you may still not have the vocabulary for it, even if you're having the experience. For sure not vocabulary. I had a woman, oh my God, she was so cute. She was like 42 or something, but she already had like 10 children or something. And she came in, she had a wig on and she said to me, you know, I had had sex for years and years and years. And finally, maybe two years before, three years before she came to see me, she had had an orgasm purely by chance. And she was like, oh my God, this is what people are talking about, you know? (laughs) And so she was on a search to try to recapture that. She couldn't get it to happen again. It was really, really hard, you know? So she and I just needed to have conversations about how to reproduce that experience for her, which really wasn't that difficult. I mean, that was like a vibrator came in very handy in that case, right? She needed to go out and check with her husband if it was okay to buy it. But other than that, like either things are happening to them that they can't articulate or they don't even know what they're aiming for. And that's, you know, they come to see me. How do you reconcile for yourself these dual missions of empowering women to understand and live with their sexuality in a way that feels comfortable for them and these very sometimes strict religious practices, how do you wrangle the two? It's it's complicated. It's very complicated. Um, it's so funny because if you read that article in the New York Times, there was a point where he asked me a question and I started to cry as he, you know, and I'm about to do it. I'm talking to you as well. Um, it is complicated. You know, I, I see myself as a feminist. I actually chair an organization called the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, which I know everybody thinks is an oxymoron. But believe it or not, you know, we just had a conference with 1,200 people at it. I think we live in attention. There's a community that I love. And I love being part of it. And I think the Orthodox Jewish community has things to offer that no other community does in terms of meaning for life and community and um, passion. On the other hand, I think there are elements of it that are sexist. And so my job has always been in every part of my life, but specifically when it comes to sexual taboos, to kind of try really hard to separate out what are actually things that are not allowed according to Jewish law. And what are things that have kind of dribbled in because of sociological narratives? And how do we separate out those two issues? Because in the end, if we can live, you know, an Orthodox Jewish life and be as open as we can to women's issues and sexual issues, I think we'll just be happier. And so, you know, we talk about it often, those of us kind of in this space as 
living in the gray, that there's tension, but that there may be innately sort of a beauty in living in that tension and constantly having to think and struggle and analyze and and kind of figure out where you are. So I guess that's the best answer I could give you. You know, what it kind of reminds me of is a story I once covered in my other life as a reporter here at WBEZ, where I went and talked to a group of pro-choice Catholics which is another sort of contradiction of terms. And, you know, I asked them, one of my first questions for these people was, if you really believe that strongly in, you know, the right to have an abortion, a woman's choice, why still be Catholic? And they said, because we really love this faith, you know? And when you love something that much, you don't just abandon it. You try to do what you can to change it. I mean, that's exactly, I could not have expressed it better. And as a matter of fact, the first time the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance had a conference, which was now 20 years ago, the New York Times did a whole piece on it and they said, you know, it's kind of like the Republican women who are unhappy with the status of women wanted to just leave and go to the Democratic Party. These women are saying, no, we don't want to leave. We want to stay and we want to make it better. In just a minute, sex talk at the dinner table, plus super sexy homework from Batsheva that you don't want to miss. You're listening to Nerdette. It's like literally sexy. So you mentioned your kids a little bit, and how old are they now? I have a 28-year-old son who has two children, so I have two grandchildren. I have a 26-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter. So we're curious, were you the cool mom? Are your kids' friends coming over yes. and like whispering questions <laughs> to you that yes. they're super would never, ever ask their own parents? Yes, I am totally, and my kids will probably tell you, I'm the cool mom who embarrassed them to no end, but <laughs> was still the cool mom. That was my follow-up, because I had the cool mom and I was mortified. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think they were sort of very proud of me, but also like sometimes embarrassed, like I my son, my second son, when he'd have friends over and he went to a you know Jewish day school and they were talking about their sex ed and I would say like, really? So did you cover the clitoris? Did you cover the female orgasm? And he'd be like sliding down in his chair. <laughs> his friends would be like, no. But... Leaning forward. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, and I still get it. Like I go to weddings of my kids' friends and more the women than the men. Well, I get calls from the guys as well about premature ejaculation, but the women will sort of pull me over at a wedding and say, I'm really having pain. Can you help me figure this one out? And I'm really glad. I mean, I'm, I feel like, again, there's just so few places where people can have honest conversations. But we always made a rule. Like, I could talk about anything I wanted, but I never talked about my sex life with my husband, with my kids. Like, that was off limits. That's fair. Right? Totally fair. <laughs> and then a month ago or something, we were sitting and my son was, my 26-year-old son was home and he, his friend had had a bachelor party. And so he asked me to get all this thing, toys and things. So I, I got this oil that, you know, I don't know if you could have seen this. It's like a soy candle. It's so it's a scented candle, but then... And you can use the oil as massage oil because it doesn't get so hot. Like you can just pour it on the body. Wow. It's like really nice. Yeah, exactly. So his friend, another friend had asked if I could get another one of those for them. So we were discussing it at the table and I said, this is at, this is a Shabbat dinner, right? Just so you have to get the, you know, the image, right? Our Sabbath dinner. And I was like, so the oil never gets really that hot. Although, you know, I said, sometimes if you really pour it on somebody's private parts, I said, like, I tried it once on your dad and he was like, ow, at which point my husband looks at me and my son looks at me and he goes, no private information. <laughs> I was like, stop it. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. But I didn't really think of that as a sexual story. I thought of that more as that, like a, oh my God, this was 
is painful story. It's like <laughs> I could see how they would find it problematic. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, just just saying, be careful with it. Was all my point was, and I apologize. <laughs> so we were wondering, do you have like a favorite sex fun fact? Aside from the fact, oh, oh, I do actually. Oh my god, a favorite fun fact. So this may not seem so exciting to you. I'm guessing it won't actually, but for me, this was like amazing. Two or three months ago, a huge study came out where they looked at the happiness factor of the frequency of sex, right? In other words, if you have sex more often, does it make you happier was the question. And what they came out with was that having sex more frequently made you happier until you were having sex once a week. And at that point, it plateaued. Huh. So I know. I was like, yay, because I was saying once or twice a week. So I felt very validated. Um, and I think that actually it's true. And now I think they're talking about more long-term relationships. And again, there is a bell curve. So if you want to have sex every day, you go for it. And if you and your partner are really both honestly happy having sex once a month, that's fine. And I really do believe that. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not. I really mean that. But I think average – I will often strive to work with couples till I know that they're having good, satisfying sex once a week. And if they're doing that, then I think we're good to go. How's that for a favorite fact? That's a fun fact. Yeah, totally. I like it. There you go. So before we let you go, one last question that we ask all our guests on their debt, because nerds like homework, is to have you suggest something that folks who've just listened to this interview should do for a homework assignment. So I think a good homework assignment would be Telling your listeners that every day, if you can find two little tiny sexy things to add to your life, you should do it and then see kind of how that changes the way you feel about yourself and your relationship. So that might be as little as like unbuttoning one more button or holding somebody's eye contact for an extra 10 seconds um, or licking your lips while somebody's watching you or just staring into the mirror at yourself or getting a really sexy color nail polish, anything that makes you sort of feel sexy just for an extra few seconds and add those into your life maybe twice a day and kind of see how that changes your your reality and your sense of yourself and your sexuality. Oh, my gosh. You know, I always say that this is my favorite homework, but I think this one really is my favorite homework. <laughs> okay. That's delightful. So do it, and I expect you to check in. Okay, report back. Okay. Report back, exactly. <laughs> and within reason, you may tweet at us about what you're doing. <laughs> Just remember Twitter is public, everyone who's listening. So if you want to tell us, you're also going to be telling everyone. So right. you know, at oh Podcast, if you want to tell us the PG or PG-13 rated ways, you are adding some sexiness to your life. Bot Shiva Marcus, thank you so much. This was really, really a pleasure. It was fun to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Greta, did you do your homework? Did you try to be sexier? Well, I did this thing where I mentioned to my boyfriend what the homework was this week, and he was like, like what sexy things? And I said, you know, like licking your lips, which was a thing that Bathsheba actually mentioned. And he said, I don't know, can that really be sexy? Isn't that just kind of weird and gross? And I was like, I don't know. And I kind of tried it, and he was like, I could see how maybe that would be kind of sexy. But that's that's it. It's unsurprising to me that this was such a cerebral exercise for you. Because it's like in the same way that like telling a, someone that you're telling them a joke before you tell it to them makes yeah. it less funny. Yeah, you're like, yeah. I'm about to be sexy. I, I'm going to do a sexy thing now. Get ready. Get ready. <laughs> Prepare yourself. Yeah, it went really well. <laughs> yeah, I'm still working on my how to be a space cadet in real life homework from Dr. Shana Gifford. That is really good homework. If you haven't heard that episode, just go listen to it right now. Yeah. You're, you're on and the then board. combine the homeworks and then you can be sexy in space. <laughs> 
And also, it's worth noting, you know, if you enjoyed our conversation with Batsheva, she does host this podcast called Joy of Text. So you should check that out. It's super interesting. Hashtag tripod. Hashtag tripod. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Candace Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. And our intern is Brady Guy. Thanks to the amazing humans for giving us all the stars on iTunes and saying lovely things. Shannon IBCLC, which I think is someone who enjoys IBC root beer. Oh, wow. And... I thought they were in British Columbia. Oh. Can't they be both? Can't they be a Canadian who loves root beer? Yeah. You know what I thought actually was that it was British Columbia Lutheran Church. That's where my mind went. Or root beer Lutheran Church. Yeah, it could be the root beer Lutheran Church. Shannon, who runs a root beer church. I like it. I mean, if there was more root beer in church, (laughs) would that be so bad? You can leave us also a very nice iTunes review, and we will thank you on the show. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Candace, our producer, has a joke. Candace has a relevant joke We're to your putting interests. Candace on the if you've spot. listened this far into the <laughs> podcast, you're going to like this joke. <laughs> okay. When I was in college, my rabbi one day asked me what I was studying, and I told him, I'm studying math and Jewish studies. And do you know what he said? What? He said, oh, I get it. You're going to help the Jewish people multiply. <laughs> yes. It's like a great dad joke. Yeah. But like up a notch because it's a rabbi joke. Yeah. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.